Today on Way Too Interested, we're talking the supply chain. It's a topical episode. Come join us. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Way Too Interested. Thanks to the Gregory Brothers there for my theme song. If you don't know already, Way Too Interested is the show where I talk to um, interesting people that I know or like, and we come on and we talk about something that they're obsessed with outside of their everyday lives. Uh, the two of us then talk to an expert in that subject in the second half of the show. It's always an interesting deep dive into kind of creative obsessions, the things that get us going, and, and why we do the things we do. Um, and today I've got a really fun one because this is my first ever topical episode of Way Too Interested. I don't do these very often, um, but it happened to be that uh, my guest today wanted to do a subject matter that was kind of very much of the moment. And usually if just some, you know, behind the scenes stuff, I, I try to record a bunch of these ahead of time, kind of batch record them so that I'm never kind of scrambling to find somebody to record one coming up. But in this instance, I had a couple more that I that had recorded before, but my guest wanted to do his topic on the supply chain, which is obviously something that a lot of people are dealing with right now, trying to get stuff from one place to another, specifically right now, a lot of people dealing with in regards to Christmas uh, gifts. So um, this is a fun one. Uh, I also have a really good expert on the show. He's the main writer for the New York Times on this subject. But let me get to our main guest first. Um, I'm really happy to have our main guest here today. Uh, it's John August, who's a quite well-known screenwriter and podcaster and many other things, as you'll hear in the interview. John and I have kind of known each other, you know, quote unquote, known each other off of Twitter for quite a while. Um, we were both kind of early in the Twitter world, um, I want to say in the late 2000, the late aughts, let's say. John's super fascinating. You you know his work. Like, you know, Go was, I think, his first big screenplay um, that he sold, but has done a ton of other movies. Also has produced a Broadway play, also has written a book series. All this stuff you'll hear in the interview. One of the most creative, interesting people, and also really interesting about creativity itself. Okay, before we get started, I want to give you three quick things about John August. Number one, John is a prolific creator, and as you'll hear in the interview, he's done a ton of stuff in many mediums, but there is something I want to shout out about him, and he's one of these kind of creative people who takes the time to help educate people new to the space, um, which is something I think we should all do. Um, he does it through his podcast. He also does it through his blog. He's very helpful to people. Even on Twitter, I, I have seen him do this as well, too, so that's one of the no most awesome things about John. Number two, speaking of that podcast, he his he's had a podcast that's been running for a very long time called Script Notes that he does with writer and producer Craig Mazin. I hope it's Craig Mazin and not Mazin. I think it is, it's Craig Mazin. Uh, uh, sorry, Craig, if it is not that, but I think it's Craig Mazin. Uh, Craig is also a, um, a well-known screenwriter and executive producer of many things. I think most recently of the miniseries Chernobyl on HBO, which was incredible. But the podcast is ostensibly about screenwriting, but it also kind of delves into some of the same sort of stuff we talk about, about creativity, about like how to open doors to things in your brain. Um, I really can't recommend it more highly. And they've been doing it forever. So they have that kind of really great like back and forth vibe that you always look for when um, you, know, you talk about like people like Sizzle and Ebert or anybody who's been working together uh, in chemistry wise for a long time. And that's them. Side note, by the way, the Ringer put out a really good Siskel and Ebert podcast that I enjoyed. If you are of a certain age and you know Siskel and it's definitely worth checking out. All right, number three on John. Um, we talk about this a little bit in the in the podcast, and actually, it's the reason for this podcast because this item is the one he kind of wanted to talk about. But he sells a really cool um, deck of cards called the Writer Emergency Pack, which is one of those things that you know. Speaking of this podcast, uh, my podcast, when we talk about like trying to inspire people or getting people to kind of unlock different things creatively in their brains. The writer emergency pack kind of does that. It's essentially a pack of playing cards, but instead of like numbers and, you know, you're not going to play hearts with these, they're actually, each card has a kind of situation on it that allows you to kind of like open up whatever creative event or a creative work you're going on in a different way. It's generally like, what does this character feel in this situation? Or like, think about this in blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't have <laughs> I don't have them in front of me, so I'm sorry. I don't have exact examples. They're much better than that, but you should go get them. Uh, they're a really fun gift for the creative person in your life, and I think probably if you order them now, you could still get them for the holidays. But don't promise me. We're going to talk about that in the supply chain. Okay, check them out. You go to go to John's website at johnaugust.com. You can check them out there. All right, enough of me. Let's get started. Here's John August. Oh wait, there's one more thing before we get started. <laughs> 
more of me. Uh, the audio in this is a little funky. I had my first experience where I had a small issue with the recording. I record in a cloud service and uh, something happened with the cloud. So my audio sounds kind of funky because for some reason my audio didn't get recorded. John and Peter, I think, are generally fine, but apologize for the audio in this. Um, it's totally listenable, so don't stop listening. But uh, if you hear me being a little bit more echoey than I am right now, that's why. All right, now here's John. Well, welcome so much. Uh, welcome, John August, to Way Too Interested. Thanks for being here. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Um, okay, so I want to get into this. Um, it's it's nice to finally chat. Um, as we you know just briefly talked about, we kind of known each other online for a while. Um, I'm a big admirer of the kind of things you've made, especially what you've done to kind of branch out from just your original writing career. Like, let me just kind of go through what I think you've worked in different mediums. There's movies, theater, podcasts. You made an app, and now and physical products. Is there anything else I'm missing? There is there anything else you've made? Um, I wrote a book. I wrote a book series called Arlo Finch, and uh, oh, I did a right. podcast about the making of that book series. Oh, that's amazing. So is that just like different ways of exploring being creative for you? Or like, why did you want to branch out to so many things, especially because you had a fair amount of success with your writing career in the beginning? I've always been really into learning by doing. And so I'll, I'll happily study up on something, but then I really wanted to make the thing. And so some right. of the time, sometimes it's FOMO. Like I see other people having fun in a sandbox and I want to play in that sandbox. But I also feel like I can't understand a thing until I've done it. And so, you know, screenwriting was that. I was trying to understand, like, what a screenplay was. And so building apps was the same thing. Making physical goods was the same thing, too. That's amazing. I, I have a similar experience. Um, weirdly, and I, I apologize for this. If I know that there's an environmental impact on it, but I'm very fascinated by the NFT world right now. Um, it's super interesting to me. And one of the cool things about it, obviously, is the is the amount of money that can go back to the creators of projects. Um, but it's just mostly that same thing for me. It's like, I feel like my kind of brain gets turned on when I discover something new. And, and especially people like us, who I think were pretty new to the internet. And I think, you know, we're around the same age, or, you know, I think. And I just remember that time in the mid 2000s, where actually I started a blog about Japanese TV, which was like the weirdest thing. It was when YouTube first came out. And I was just learning how to write code. I'd never been a code writer since I was a kid. And like, that was so inspiring in my brain. I woke up just excited to do it. And like, that's what I think is worth pursuing kind of every day. Absolutely. I remember the very early days of the web and when, there weren't even terms for some things. And so, you know, we'd have like Netscape. It's like, oh, are you looking at through this website through Netscape? And we didn't even quite know what to call different things. But uh, I found my original website that I had made, which is even the pre-blog, it's before the reason it was the term for a blog, it was back from 1996. And so I have wow. it up on my site at johnaugust.com slash 1996, uh, where you can sort of see like what my website looked like way back then. And it was just, it was before we'd even had the, uh, the concept of, you know, chronological posts or any of that stuff. It was just, you know, a, a list of links and like all those links are dead because all those sites don't <laughs> exist anymore. But it was really weird to see sort of what we thought the world was like. And I, I agree with you that I think NFTs are sort of a, a giant shit show at this moment, but they're fascinating for the same reasons that the early web was fascinating because it's like every week it's just changing. Do you remember what you were putting on that website? Like what was that when, how old were you? Like what was, what was your life like back then? So I was in my early twenties and it was, um, you know, I can look at the site right now. So it has like poems I wrote. It has <laughs> links to coverage or you know, the coverage is like the book reports for the film industry. So the coverage I was writing at that time, pictures of my dog, Kind of all the things you sort of that were a 1996 website were there. You could only find it by sort of stumbling across it because it was before there were really search engines, before there was Google. So you kind of had to know it was there or like follow a link from some other list of blogs or I mean, blogs, websites out there. I kind of wish there was a better way to find that old stuff. I remember actually speaking of movies, there was a time when I lived in LA in the late 90s. There was a who are the guys? There's two screenwriters that started a really good message board. Do you know who I'm talking about? I think they wrote the Shrek movies. Yes. Yeah. What was the name of that website or what was the name of the thing? I think it was Word Player. That's right. Word Player. That's exactly right. And I was pretty active in there for a while. And it like, that's just one of those moments where like message boards were like a really big thing for a while. And it like, I made friends in there and, and now it's like, you know, that's Discord or Slack. It's happening. It's just like an interesting snapshot of different aspects of the web. Absolutely. So um, that website very much felt like a BBS that had sort of moved onto the web. And like it, every, all the interface was a little bit strange and it felt like for sure one person could be online at a time. But you know, what we take as granted for like how forums should work, how you should be able to connect with people online, Twitter, just like, you know, things that seem really obvious were not obvious at the time. 
Exactly. Uh, oh, let's talk. I want to talk about actually very quickly before we jump into other stuff. I, you're you know, you're a writer, and I'm assuming you're still writing pretty much full time, or you're doing writing. Like, what's your writing process like? Is it are you doing it now? Oh yeah, I'm writing on a project right now. So, you know, I'm either mapping out some bigger project or I'm in the middle of a draft, and they're very different parts of your brain. So I love the blue sky, figuring out everything from from scratch, but then the really detailed work of like, okay, I'm, I'm in this scene. How do I get from where I started to where I need to get to? That's exciting too. And writing a full length movie script is sort of, you know, it's a it's a long race. It's like a, it's, a, it's at least a good 10k to sort of sort of get through it. But I tend to sort of I try to focus on sort of movie length stuff. And I've never really run a big TV show because that's just a marathon. That's a a mile after mile after mile after mile. And I've just never wanted that for a life. I uh, I'm in the process of working on a um, middle grade novel right now, and I, I wrote a, a, a fun first draft. Or actually, I, I think it's probably a fun second draft because I kind of sketched it out pretty well. But I'm having a really hard time doing the kind of like second big edit slash restructuring thing. And I've done it. I've, this is probably my fifth of these that I've tried, and I haven't like you know I'm not trying to shell, sell any of them yet until I get one good. But like that is a tricky bump. Like it's a, it's a tricky hump to get over, which is that how do you move from what you were excited about to the to the next thing, which is like the work, right? It's kind of hard. Yeah, it's recognizing the slog of it all. And yeah. you know, like, oh, this was fun and it's no longer fun. So is it bad because it's no longer fun? And no, it's just that's just where you're at in the process. And so I did I did three middle grade novels back to back, the Arlo Finch books. And uh it was exciting and then it was a grind and then it was interesting and then it was a grind. It, it was just it was it kept repeating itself. And as I got to the second book and the third book, at least I understood sort of what the process was and like the ups and downs and the highs and lows as you're going through it. Yeah, I, I also have found that, do you, have you ever heard of the Pomodoro method? Do you know what that is? Oh, of course. That's the, where you're setting like a 20 minute timer, and yeah. like classically a little tomato timer, yeah. I, uh, it's, I found that that's the best way for me to write because like I, my brain needs like mini breaks in between and it's been the kind of th the secret to unlock writing for me but it's, it's such a cool system but there's so many different systems people have some people have no problem my wife's a novelist and she can sit down for six hours and just work and i just don't work that way oh no not no way for me <laughs> i so i don't do a pomodoro but i do what i call a write sprint which is i will announce like at the start of the hour i'm writing for 60 minutes no breaks anybody want to join me and mm. i find 60 minutes is a good i can get a lot done in 60 minutes and then I will step up, walk away, and I might do another one later on in the day. But like, if I've done a really solid hour's worth of work, I've made a lot of progress. I can, oh, I, can awesome. I can generally hit my thousand words if I do a you know uh, one hour's worth of solid writing. Ostensibly, the, this podcast is kind of about discovery and finding new things. Like, what, what, how do you do that now with given your busy life and trying all these projects? Like, for me, one of the reasons I want to do this project is I believe it's kind of the lifeblood of a creative person is like discovering new things and kind of opening up. But what's, what's your process to find new stuff? You know, I've always just been incredibly curious. And so it's really basically trying to not let everything sort of overwhelm me and sort of say, like, oh, not try to do everything all at once. And so it's trying to be pretty selective about sort of like, okay, this, this is an interesting thing that I actually want to engage on and, and really want to get into. And so like NFTs, for example, are a thing that like I find interesting, but I don't kind of really want to fully engage on because I sort of recognize like, oh, that's going to be a, a giant time suck there. But everything else, I, I love it. And I'll just ask questions. And like you, I love to get smart people on the phone and just pick their brain about how stuff works. I, I've discovered lately that like having conversations, real life conversations, whether it's phone or Zoom or, or these are those same conversations, like inspires me in a much different way than almost anything else. And and I've been trying to ca uh, cultivate a little bit more because I think in my former life when I was working as a you know late night show producer, the conversations I had were all kind of like in this very tight knit awesome family. But you're there with them for a hundred you know hundred people for like eighty hours a day or sorry eighty hours a week. You don't get a lot of outside experience, and like so, something I've really actively tried. And by, by the way, one of the things that's great about Twitter is it does this if you do it right, is to try to open the door to more voices and different people in my ear, um, and obviously not just creative people, but like people, a diverse group of people, um, and trying to hear different people's stories because it just opens up everything um, in my own brain as well. Absolutely, I think you have to sort of recognize what the edges of your experience are, sort of what your what your filter is, and then sort of try to move past your filter when you can. And I try to curate a list of like who I follow on Instagram, who I follow on Twitter, so that I can get some different things in there. So I'm not just you know being fed the same stuff back. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, uh, 
Let's start talking a little bit about the topic. So I, I'm sure you've heard, but I have a kind of a, a standard way I want people to get into this. So please say, uh, I am, state your name, and then tell me what you're way too interested in. I am John August, and I am way too interested in supply chains. Okay, this is fascinating because I think this is my first, like, quote unquote, topical episode. Way too interested. Yeah. yeah. I worried about that. Yeah. That's okay, though. I think this is great because, like, I'm super interested in supply chains mostly just because. I like like how things work. I, I always joke because my friends always made fun of me because I love B-roll of factories, watching boxes move from place to place. And this is that on a, just a global scale. Um, maybe tell me a little bit about why you wanted to talk about this. What, give me the background. I know you have, you have something that you made that kind of got stuck in this world at this point, right? Absolutely. Well, I think we always talk about supply chains in terms of if there being a crisis in the supply chain or there's a problem. But I, I was actually fascinated by supply chains when they were working really well. And so mm. most of what I've done has been digital products. So I make apps. I make an app for the Mac called Highland. I make an app for iPhone called Weekend Read. And they're just bits. And so they're hard to make, but then you put them up on the server and everyone can see them and download them and it's fine. And you can make as many copies as you want. Back in 2014, we had this idea for an app called Unstuck. And the idea is that you open this app when you're like sort of stuck in your writing and you shake the phone and it gives you like a new suggestion for sort of how to get unstuck from it. So it's sort of like a magic eight ball, but you know, a digital version of that with like very specific writing tips. And it worked, but it just felt kind of wrong. It didn't feel like the kind of thing you shouldn't be pulling out your phone when you're stuck. You need to, I wanted something physical. And so at the same time, I got this um, sort of gift box from JJ Abrams and he had these special playing cards he had made that were sort of branded playing cards for Bad Robot. And it's like, oh, you can make special playing cards. What if we took this idea of being unstuck and made it into like a deck of cards? That feels mm -hmm. doable. So I researched like how he could get these cards printed. And it was exciting. And, and I had a print background before. So I knew like, oh, we can do this thing. This this will be great. We made a little test decks and uh, ordered them from a printer in China and got them sent here. And it was, it was exciting to see like, oh, this is a physical good. What I hadn't thought about that is like, okay, you have to scale that, you know, thousands of times. And suddenly you're actually dealing with really a supply chain problem. You have to figure out how to get not just bits, but atoms from one place to another place. And that was daunting and exciting and maybe realize that there's a whole hidden infrastructure about moving stuff around the world. What was that like? Uh, I always think about this because I think a lot of Americans just kind of think stuff shows up on their doorstep mm -hmm. now. And it's one of the things I want to ask our expert about too, but like, do you remember in that process, like, I don't even know, because I thought about making a physical thing and I have a, my brother-in-law imports, weirdly, his, he's got like a badminton license mm -hmm. for Canada, like that's, so he's, he's very much deep on like working badminton stuff, which is huge in Asia, obviously, yeah. but um, how do you, how do you get started with it? Like, do you have to go to like, is, I don't even know what the name of the website is. There was a website I visited at one point, I don't think it's Alibaba or something, but like there's a, there is a place to like a marketplace online, right? Where you have to go to look for suppliers. Yeah. So in our case, the suppliers, our supply chain wasn't especially complicated. So we could figure out like, okay, we need to be able to print decks. Who can print decks? And so that's just some Googling. You can figure out like, okay, this is the company who can print playing card style decks, which is, you know, we had an existing kind of product we could make. So it's just a custom version of like what a playing card deck would be. And so we could figure that out. And um, so initially we did this one company called Make Playing Cards, um, which was based in China and they did our test decks, but were they the right people to do our real decks? we would see. And then we also had to figure out like sort of how are you going to find customers for this? And so um, our first initial launch was on a Kickstarter and we became a very popular, very successful Kickstarter. And we had 5,000 backers ordering 8,000 decks. And so we had to scale up from like, okay, this is, this place was great for doing 20 test decks, but can they do, you know, 5,000, 8,000? I didn't do sort of enough research to figure out like, oh, there probably was like a domestic person who could have done this, but it's like, oh no, mm -hmm. they did a good job. We'll use them again not thinking like, oh, you know what, when you have 8,000 decks, that's a huge shipment. And you have to figure out how to get that huge shipment from China to here. And like just sticking them like in a box won't work. It's going to be huge. On the website, you can see like when DHL came with like this, this load, it was a pallet that's like being pushed up my driveway and just taking over an entire office. And we had to figure out like how to get these decks from our office here in Los Angeles out to the backers around the world. And it was exciting, but it also was like, okay, this is going to be weeks of work to do. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that's the other thing I think about whenever I get involved in something that's not just a, a me creative endeavor. There's a lot of connections and, and mm -hmm. research you have to do. Like, I'm assuming that took a while just to do that aspect of it. Absolutely. So, and, you know, just getting it here, there's things like bills of lading, which is like basically 
the description of her is sort of like, this is the thing, this is the truck that's going to take it from here to there. And there's a whole system for doing it. And I barely understand it, but I understood it well enough to sort of get this one thing from, we ended up flying them over because it was going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to stick on a boat at that, even at that time, um, to get it from the airport to our house. And like, there's, there's ways to do that. And there's expediters who could get stuff through. There's customs, there's all this stuff that you're dealing with. And there's companies you can pay to do that stuff, but it's expensive. Um, and now right. is it worth is it worth it for yeah. the product if it's a cheap product, right? Or not? No. I shouldn't say cheap, but not like you're not you're not selling computers here. No, and our margin on these decks of cards was good because you know we were selling them for like nineteen dollars each, and they weren't costing us that much to print. But all the logistics of getting it from where we were printing them to people's hands was a lot, and that was really the expense of this product. And that was for the initial launch, but then we had to figure out like, okay, if we're not doing them all at once, we're just selling them on Amazon. What does that look like? And you know, we had to go through a completely different process of figuring out suppliers for that, getting them to Amazon, getting them listed on Amazon, letting Amazon deal with all the you know the customers of that. It's just been really fascinating over the years to sort of see that evolve. Do you have you seen? Are there knockoffs of it? I always wonder about that with products like this. So no one has tried to like, that we know of has tried to knock off the actual deck itself. But what we have found on Amazon is people will. If we have them ever for sale, people will buy them for sale, and then when we raise the price again, they will arbitrage and like put them back up to compete against us for the buy box. We also ran into a situation where, um, from the initial Kickstarter, for every deck we sent out to backers, we would send out a deck to schools, and which is great, and it's been a really good program, except that sometimes people would take the decks we were selling to schools, or we're giving to schools, and try to sell them against us on Amazon. So we learned that we had to sort of make special versions that we sell to schools, that we give to schools so that the ones that, that they don't get sold back against us. They don't have barcodes on them and they're labeled like educational edition. It's funny because that's like the other end of the supply chain. You think a lot about like how stuff gets made, but also one of the things I wanted to mention to Peter um, is just like how the digital goods industry has kind of started to shift this stuff because really it's all being sold digitally now, right? Yeah. So that's the other side of it. You get the physical product, but then you have to deal with the digital, the digital sellers. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, Figuring out sort of how all those pieces fit together and how all the gears work has been great. The last piece I would say that's been interesting is figuring out sort of the environmental footprint of it all. And mm-hmm. so initially it was like, okay, well, this is the company who could make it cheaply in China and we, our margins are good. But then when you think about sort of like, oh, does it actually make sense that we're selling most of these in the U.S., but we're printing them in China? It doesn't really. And so we found a U.S. supplier who could print them. And initially we were printing at this you know, one plant, sending them to our warehouse and then sending them to Amazon and then sending them out. We've now gotten down to the point where like, we can send them directly from our printer in Florida out to people. And so we've just been able to sort of you know, shorten the, the supply chain and the footprint so much on these products. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's a good, that's a good transition to talking about uh, what we're going to ask Peter about. So Peter, obviously, um, he'll be up in a second, has been covering the kind of global supply chain crisis for the New York Times in an interesting way. Like, I'm assuming if you've moved most of your manufacturing to America, have you had to deal with it so far or is it, is it still affecting you? We are really lucky that we're basically completely onshored everything. So no, mm-hmm. it's not really affected us very much at all. This crisis hasn't. Although I have friends who run game companies that do print in China still, and it's just like getting their boxes from China to here has been, you know, most of the last two years of work. Yeah. So let's. What do you want to know from Peter? I know. I think this is great that we want to talk about just the kind of general, generic kind of supply chain stuff too. But like, what are some specific questions you want to ask him? You know. I'm curious about why some stuff is still not available. And like we hear about computer chips and certain things like that, but like I still can't get caffeine-free Coke Zero, which is like my go-to drink. It just doesn't exist anymore. And so I, I want to know whether it's, is it a marketing decision that they're choosing not to make it or are they actually constrained in some other way? Because that's not, it's not China is not make, making our, our, our Coke Zero. So I want to know about that. Are other manufacturers trying to do kind of what I'm trying to do in terms of like, onshoring and like not and sort of bring stuff back in in house because um or simplifying product lines because i feel like some stuff just doesn't exist anymore maybe that's my coke zero problem um is that they're just trying to get rid of that product and then i remember just being you know blown away by the concept of just-in-time manufacturing or just-in-time delivery i remember like mm-hmm. when you and i were growing up like japan was the model of sort of like wow their factories are so efficient and like they don't have any inventory they just build exactly what they needed to build at that time and that seems like it's, it just is not sustainable. And uh, maybe the pendulum is swinging back the other way. So he will have talked to more people who will know about that stuff. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I always think about economics, which, you know, Peter's kind of an expert in as such a fascinating discipline because like, I remember taking a college class on economics and I was like, whoa, this is not what I expected. It's, it's a lot of like really interesting, like problem solving, almost philosophical problem solving, yeah. which is actually super fascinating if you dig deeper on it. I mean, Freakonomics, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to that, but I wish there was more people talking about it in that way. Yeah, I follow Noah Smith on Twitter um, and read his newsletter, which I think is a great overview of economics and sort of like the actual practical effects of it. I love economics too, but I just don't, the math of it completely escapes me. Like I just don't have any ability to do that. I look at the curves, like I can kind of get the curves, but I don't really get the curves. Yet the impact that has on sort of decision-making at every level is so fundamental. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to um, take a quick break here um, and we're going to jump back in with Peter uh, in a second. So uh, stick around. Way too interested. All right, we'll be right back with our special guest. Um, but I do want to shout out in the middle of every episode, I've been shouting out some of my favorite books for creative people that I think you would like. And this book is written by uh, someone who I'm friends with, and I really admire what he's done with his life, uh, and I hope to have on the show at some point. Um, it's a book by Questlove, Amir Thompson, the drummer for The Roots, longtime band member of The Place I Used to Work, uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And this book is called Creative Quest. It's one of those books that you kind of open up and you're not sure what's going to be in it. And you just kind of get lost in it. It's full of exercises. It's full of cool ways to kind of unlock your creativity. I can't recommend it more highly to kind of almost any type of creative. Like if you're a creative person who does creative work for your everyday life, you'll like it. If you're a person who kind of wants to figure out what your creative sensibility is, you'll like it. If you're a kid who doesn't even know what their creative stuff is, there's stuff in here I feel like for them too. So the book's called Creative Quest by Questlove. You can find it anywhere you get books and I hope you enjoy it. Um, and let's get back to the podcast. We're about to be joined by the New York Times' Peter S. Goodman. Um, I'll, you'll hear all of his titles there, but he basically is their main writer on the supply chain. Welcome back, everybody. We're now joined by Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent for the New York Times and the author of a soon-to-be-released book, Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. Welcome, Peter, to Way Too Interested. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's. I want to set the table here before we let John uh, kind of ask you a bunch of questions. You are uh, the global economics correspondent for the Times, and you've really specialized in the last few months here in looking at this you know, global supply chain crisis that we have going on. Um, first of all, can you kind of tell us a little bit of your background and how you got into covering global economics? Huh. How much time do you have? You know, it was just the sort of logical outgrowth of a bunch of stuff I did. I mean, I, I, um, I started off as a local government reporter. I, I mean, I, I started off freelancing in Southeast Asia, came back to the States, worked up in Alaska at the Anchorage Daily News. Uh, worked in Sacramento for a little while for a zoned community insert of the Sacramento Bee, and eventually got to the Washington Post and ended up in China for six years as the Asian economic correspondent. So that was my first taste of you know, economics as lens on reality. Uh, and then came back to the States and covered international econ for a while, and then jumped to the Times to take what then seemed like a sleepy job as the national economics correspondent started there in uh, the fall of 2007, just in time for what we now call the Great Recession. And, it, you know, by then it just became clear that economics is such a broad lens. You can write about anything. You can write about race, class, sports, power, media. I mean, it's just all, all in there. It's just a way of looking at the world. Uh, and so I was very attracted to this job that the Times offered me in 2016 to go to London and uh, and write about the European economy primarily. But then it became clear that London was a great jumping off point for, for Africa coverage, for South Asian coverage. Uh, and so that turned into global econ. And here we are. Before we jump into supply chain talk, can you give me like the, or our listeners, the kind of explain it like I'm five version of the global supply chain? Like what, what is, what is currently the global supply chain look like maybe outside of the crisis that we've been through? Yeah, I mean, the global supply chain is this whole unseen uh, set of people and equipment and ships and planes that brings all the stuff that we buy to us. Uh, it's the way in which cars are built with, you know, literally thousands of players around the world participating in sticking the car that's in your driveway. 
you know, from computer chips to glass that gets turned into windshields to, you know, the individual parts of rubber and plastic that get turned into brake linings and seat covers, you know, all of that. It's it's the web of forces that brings everything together. Uh, and, and it has gotten very complicated because lots of different specialists exist often far apart. And we've taken until recently shipping uh, the reliability and the affordability of shipping pretty much for granted. So companies have gotten very sophisticated in figuring out like, well, we can get our cotton in Pakistan very cheaply. We can hire uh, a textile factory in China to turn that cotton into a t-shirt while creative minds in California figure out what it should look like and the you know ironic slogan it's gonna say while you know marketers from you know Tokyo to New York figure out how to how to sell it. And all of those pieces are part of what we now call the global supply chain. Right. Um, okay, John, what do, you, what do you want to know? Let's jump in. Great. So Peter, some background for me. I'm mostly a screenwriter, but back in 2014, I started this thing called Writer Emergency Pack, which is this little deck of cards that we print for ideas when you get stuck in your writing. And it's like, oh, it's so simple to make a deck of cards. And yet we found it so complicated to get this originally printed in China and now printed in the US. And it was the first time I was aware of like, oh wow, there's, there's a whole, what you're describing is this whole web of businesses and shipping things that get stuff from point A to point B. And that making and shipping atoms is just so much more complicated than bits. So my question is, when I first discovered that, oh, there's you know the difference between shipping on a boat versus on a plane, when did that all really begin? And when did, when did the business of that really start? Because I, I can think back to you know, merchant traders and Venice and how that, that, all, that all started. But what we think of now as the supply chain, how old is that? And who are the folks who control it? Because it doesn't feel like it's one government or even sort of one uh, or the UN. There's no, there's no central body that's sort of overseeing that. So how did it come to be this modern sense of a supply chain? globally? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, shipping goes back to, you know, goes back hundreds of years, right? People figured out it was good to get the wind to do the work and get us from point A to point B. And, you know, from that, uh, we get Madeira wine coming in from the island off Portugal to wherever people are rich enough to. We get chocolate. Yeah, we get chocolate. Right. Uh, We get spices making their way from Southeast Asia to to the UK and tea suddenly can be grown in India and consumed in, in Britain or, or wherever. I mean, that, that's, that story is hundreds of years old, but in terms of the modern supply chain and what we're dealing with now, you gotta go back to Henry Ford, who you know revolutionizes what we now know of as the assembly line. Now, let's have individual people stationed where they need to be to most efficiently make stuff. And so now let's think about how to most efficiently use the materials that we're going to need uh, and warehouse them and make them available as needed. And then another landmark is Toyota uh, and what we now know uh, as just-in-time manufacturing. It's you know the, the Second World War is over. Japan's dealing with the devastation of the war. They've got limited resources. They've got engineering know-how. How are they going to figure out how to rebuild? And Toyota's at the center of that story. You know, Japan famously has not that much land. A lot of the land's mountainous. Uh, it's it's very densely populated. So they have to be careful about how much land they use up for any purpose. Uh, and Toyota pioneers this idea that instead of, you know, filling our warehouse with loads of auto parts that we'll need eventually, let's have them built and arrive at the assembly line mm-hmm. as needed. So, so this is, you know, quite an evolution of, of Henry Ford's uh, notions that, that he pioneered in terms of the Model T assembly line. Another key moment is the development of the shipping container yeah. in the 1950s. So before the shipping container, working at a port or on a ship was like dealing with the mother of all jigsaw puzzles. Okay, you pull up at the port, got to move some machinery, maybe you're sending a tractor, we've got some agricultural commodities. How are we going to fit all this stuff together and make sure that they don't crush one another as they're moving around at sea? Well, the shipping container becomes the solution to some massive problems. We're going to have a standard size steel box. You can 
keep it at the factory. The people making goods can figure out how to fit it into the box. They worry about the packaging. It gets put on the back of a truck that takes it to a port, a crane that's set up to lift these things, can put them on top of ships. The ships are built to accommodate you know, this standard size item. And at the other end, it can get on, it can be placed on a, on a, a rail uh, line. So suddenly things can move about much more quickly. I mean, it's, it's as if the seas have now been shrunken uh, and the risks of shipping, the loss of stuff at sea has been diminished. Uh, and then at the same time, we get the advent of these huge liberalized trading agreements like NAFTA, uh, a major milestone is China entering the World Trade Organization in 2001. So between shipping containers driving down the cost of shipping and making it uh, much less risky, and now the ability of multinational companies to go to China, invest in plants that can now uh, take advantage of very low cost wages, uh, and China's eager to export their wares to the world, you now have a very enticing set of circumstances for, you know, JCPenney, for uh, Amazon, for you know, anybody who's making stuff at bulk and distributing it at bulk. You've got a way to pull in supplies from around the world very easily. Well, so it sounds like it's standardization, which is something that Henry Ford created, but also systemization so that you have just ways of sort of being able to count on these things happening. So basically, if I, if I buy this thing, it will come back. But that ultimately comes back to trust, doesn't it? Like you have to be able to trust that like you can build a factory in China or like, you know, contract with a factory in China and they will actually deliver you that stuff. So was it really China entering the WTO that made people feel confident that you could count on China giving you the stuff there? Like what changed or is it just inertia that, you know, we believe that China will actually deliver the goods we're asking for? Well, it was scale, right? Yeah. I mean, the first uh, the first companies that went over to China uh, at the end of the Cultural Revolution were taking some serious risks. By 2001, when China enters the WTO, you've got a whole host of consultants, middlemen who are set up to help a company. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you're running your factory in Ohio. You've never been to China. You don't know anything about it, but. You go there and you can hire somebody who can introduce you to a bunch of different factories that can build your prototypes. Now, it was messy. I mean, there were all kinds of people got ripped off. Counterfeit goods got sold. This was not a risk-free uh, atmosphere by any stretch. But over time, multinational companies figured out how to do it. And it was a very profitable formula. It has been a very profitable formula. Dealing with the middleman has been fascinating because you'd always think of middleman as being a problem. But in trying to get this stuff done in China, middlemen were just fundamentally, these middlemen were absolutely essential because like I had no ability to deal directly with the factory. I needed to find somebody in between who could actually do this and do it a lot, sort of gather together a bunch of orders and put them through at once. So that sure. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of like, it depends what your middleman's doing, right? I mean, if you're thinking about your health insurance provider in the United States, you're like, I'm not really sure what value they're bringing me uh, in terms of all the paperwork I have to fill out and the hoops I have to jump through. Wouldn't it be better if I could just call my doctor and go there? Uh, if you're planning on going backpacking in Bhutan, you might want to hire a travel company to help you. Now, Peter, I'm curious about sort of the, it's not quite the last mile, but when you have goods in the US and you actually get them out to customers, that's also been a, a bottleneck and a problem. So like our decks right now are being sold through Amazon. And I don't know if you've been covering sort of like what's happened at Amazon, but folks like me who are you know, fulfilled by Amazon or go through that program, the shelf space is incredibly constrained. They're basically not letting you send in as much inventory. And for something that's highly seasonable like my product, we know we're going to sell out. And so we have to keep uh, planning sort of backup systems for like what we're going to do when we run out of stock at Amazon. Yeah, you also know you have to deal with their logistics company or you're not going to get your prime designation, in which case you may as well be like a department store in the middle of Nebraska as opposed to being in Times Square. Absolutely. If we don't win the buy box, then we're screwed. And it's a, that's been a fascinating thing to learn as well, sort of how all that sort of fits together. But I feel like the systemization of sort of how Amazon works is so crucial to this, too, because it's not just that we have our UPC code on the bottom, our standardization, you know, of like you know, the barcode, but we have to have our special Amazon code on these decks because that's how their system tracks, you know, this product on this shelf going out. We have to put on special QR codes for every single thing we sell. 
where is that going? I mean, and, and is, it, is it really Amazon being so powerful here, or is that just how we're going to be thinking about goods in the future? Ten years from now, is it going to be a given that everything has to have sort of a code, a QR code on it? Well, I think that's both. I mean, as consumers and activists uh, realize that there's a lot of information that we've lacked about the provenance of our stuff, you know, take an obvious example. So the region of Xinjiang in uh, Western China, uh, which is home to the Uyghur people. Mm -hmm. This is a place where many governments, including the United States, accuse the People's Republic of China of committing genocide in exploiting the Uyghurs, pushing them off their land, forcing them uh, to labor, separating families, putting people into concentration camps. Well, it turns out a huge amount of the world's uh, cotton supply is grown in Xinjiang. And you could be a multinational company actually trying to avoid putting Xinjiang cotton in your product. And there's a really good chance that you have no idea what you're buying yeah. because mm -hmm. it's all mixed. There's so many middlemen merchants involved and the supply is so overwhelming that it's very, very difficult to track. So that's a driver right there for QR code technology that can help us understand, you know, who's been touching this stuff? Where's this stuff actually from? Most big companies, they deal with one supplier for one big component. They don't have any idea like who that supplier is buying their, yeah. you know, six layers of sub suppliers where that stuff's coming from. So, so some of what you're describing uh, is likely with us, you know, into the indefinite future. Some of what you're describing, though, also um, is another driver of some of the shortages in the supply chain that we're probably going to discuss later, uh, which is monopoly power. Mm -hmm. And Amazon uh, stands accused of uh, wielding the power of monopolists, you know, both in the United States and, and in the European Union and elsewhere. And there's no doubt that in the transaction, you're selling something to a customer. They want as big a cut of that as possible. They, they certainly want to be the gatekeepers and they, they, they want to minimize the likelihood that you'll go sell your product direct. They want to make it painful for you to think about some other arrangement uh, that cuts Amazon out, out of the equation. So, so some of this is certainly about their control. I was going to say, Peter, it might be good to transition a little bit to talking about kind of the current situation. So you've been covering what is now known as kind of like the the supply chain crisis. Maybe just, you know, you've done some amazing reporting on it. Just kind of recap where we are right now. Like, like what what is what is the situation? I, I know that I was going to say the reason I know about this, because mostly after we elect our new president, I've kind of folded out a lot of the news, not everything. But the reason why it came to the forefront for me is I saw my wife buying Christmas presents about a month ago. And I was like, this is not us. We are like, you know, December 15th Christmas present buyers. And I was like, what is going on? And then we talked about it. So can, can you just kind of tell the listeners like what's happening in this world right now? Uh, what's happening in the world right now is there's a whole lot of stuff that's really hard to buy. And a lot of stuff that's a lot more expensive than it was pretty recently because lots of things are in short supply. And your wife is not nuts. Uh, your wife has figured out that we now live in a world where large numbers of people uh, have experienced uh, what it is to go to the store and not be able to buy toilet paper and have to schmooze, you know, the truck driver bringing in stuff to the grocery store to find out what time's the toilet paper coming in. I better be there or I'm going to go home without any toilet paper. That experience is now uh, one that's shared throughout what we call the global supply chain. So major retailers have placed massive orders much earlier than they used to in the holiday uh, season, knowing that if they don't get stuff from principally factories in China, but other parts of the world, to their distribution centers in the US much earlier than usual, and if they don't have a surplus of goods, they could have difficulty uh, stocking their shelves, fulfilling their orders, because there's so many parts of the supply chain that have broken down. We've got a surge of well, let me back up for a second. So about uh, the fall of 2020, uh, we discovered that most of conventional wisdom about uh, the pandemic economy was wrong. And there'd been the assumption that uh, because major economies went into lockdown in uh, the early part of 2020, and stock markets initially plummeted and companies started laying off or furloughing their employees, that this was like a classic recession. Like people were going to lose their jobs. Some people were going to lose their housing and uh, less money would get spent 
And we know how that story goes. Well, we have less demand for ships because factories are going to be making less stuff because fewer people can have money to buy things. And that's kind of how things worked. And then we discovered by the middle of 2020 that, no, that's actually not how things are working. People may be locked down and some people are indeed suffering, not to minimize that. A lot of people did lose their jobs and a lot of people did lose spending power. But a lot of people with spending power simply stopped booking trips to holiday destinations. They stopped going to the gym. Uh, they stopped going out to restaurants to eat. And then they took the money that they used to spend on those kinds of things. And they said, well, I can't go to the gym. I'm going to put a Peloton in my basement. Well, I'm not going to work, but my bedroom's my office now. I better buy a monitor, a computer chair, all that kind of stuff. Oh, my kids aren't going to school. Uh, I don't want them bouncing off the walls. I'm going to buy them, you know, play sets, uh, gaming consoles, new iPads, and I'm going to fill my kitchen with every conceivable kind of appliance because I'm now a short order cook to children. And, you know, this is our only source of entertainment. So that resulted in a massive surge of orders for all that kind of stuff, much of it made in China, and all that stuff got made. And then the factories said, hey, we need some containers. And the shipping company said, we don't have any containers for you. Well, why don't we have containers for you? Because previously, sorry to back up in the chronology, uh, the world had discovered we don't have enough PPE. We don't have enough personal protective equipment. We don't have masks, hand sanitizer, surgical gowns, all that kind of stuff. And the whole world needed that at once. And a lot of that stuff is made in China. So suddenly containers are getting sent around the world, even to places that have no particular reason to fill them up with other stuff to send back to China. So, you know, the container full of PPE that lands in Los Angeles gets full of you know, recycled cardboard. It gets loaded with soybeans that have been railed out from the Midwest and sent back to China. The container that gets sent to East Africa with PPE gets unloaded and then it just sits there because it's not economical to send an empty. Some empties eventually do get sent back to China, but mostly they just pile up. So now it's the middle of 2020. All these factory goods are getting made in China. And where are the containers? Well, there are other places. So the price of shipping now skyrockets because if you have a container, it's incredibly valuable and you can charge more for it. So the price of sending a container full of goods from Shanghai to Los Angeles goes from about 2,500 bucks to $25,000. And meanwhile, stuff's getting kicked off of ships because uh, if you're not, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, an airline situation. Like if you are a uh, economy class passenger at O'Hare in the middle of a blizzard and you're trying to get the next flight to Seattle, good luck. You know, the mega platinum people are getting all the seats, right? The people who paid for full revenue first class tickets, they're getting out first. So the same goes for, you know, Target, Walmart, Amazon. Okay, they're going to get their stuff on the container ship. They're going to pay whatever it costs. But a lot of other stuff's just sitting around at the docks. And then when the ships land at the ports, especially in Los Angeles and, and, and Long Beach, but other ports as well, you don't have enough docks for all these ships to unload. You've got dock workers stuck in quarantine because they got COVID. There aren't enough truck drivers because some of those people are in quarantine. And it turns out that driving a truck is really a crappy job. And a lot of people have dropped out of it. Uh, it's been diminished over time. So back to your wife. So your wife has picked up on this, the toilet paper disappearing, combined with all the mayhem in the supply chain. And she said, if I wanna have stuff at holiday season, I, I better order early. That's really interesting. I was gonna ask the other thing I wanted to kind of dig in on this, cause I, I'm sure, I'm sorry, John, one last question yeah. before we jump back to you. But one of the things I read about is the idea that obviously goods, like what you're saying, like the, the super platinum members can push goods through. But one of the things that's kind of scary about this is the fact that there's a lot of medicine, medical needs that may not be getting to the people they need to get right. to. Like, like specifically maybe ask, I remember you had, a, you had a metaphor at one point, or maybe actually a specific example of like a type of paint that needed a chemical to come from one place and wasn't getting it to make the paint. Is that true for medicines as well? Uh, that That is true. And uh, medical devices actually are one example where you know, people who actually need medical devices for things like uh, sleep apnea are having a difficult time buying what they need because, you know, everybody now knows computer chips are, are in short supply for the same reason, you know, we just discussed, like in the early part of the pandemic, 
a lot of car companies said, well, we're not going to be selling as many cars. We're going to limit our orders for computer chips, which are now important components in modern cars. And the computer chip makers cut capacity in many cases. It turned out as we're buying all those video game consoles, et cetera, the demand for computer chips goes through the roof. We can't satisfy them. So now that we're trying to play catch up, the computer chip manufacturers are prioritizing their best customers. Who are their best customers? Apple, Google, et cetera. Um, even the car companies are lesser customers, but they're still much more important customers than like the niche manufacturer of a medical device that needs a computer chip. So as a result, because in, you know, in the way our global capitalism works, an iPhone is more important than a life-saving ventilator. You can buy an iPhone, but you can't necessarily buy the life-saving ventilator. Hmm, that's fascinating. All right. Sorry, John, go ahead. Peter, question for you. So uh, with our right emergency pack, we ended up sort of insourcing. So we've ended up moving all of our printing to the U.S. and sort of really trying to shorten our supply chain. Is that something you're seeing with other companies you're talking to? Are they trying, like the ones who were very reliant on sort of these big web global supply chains, what changes are they making? And are they moving, you know, are they trying to get past this just-in-time manufacturing? Like what changes are you seeing <clears throat> these companies make? I mean, in the immediate term, everyone says they're they're done with just-in-time manufacturing in the way it's been practiced and everyone, you know, instead of lean manufacturing, it's now resilient manufacturing. Well, with publicly traded companies, we'll see how long that lasts. I mean, you know, take Ford, you know, here's Henry Ford's company. Henry Ford was very meticulous thinking about hiccups in the supply chain and backup plans. Modern day Ford has spent more money on uh, stock buybacks uh, and dividends uh, than R&D for chips. So modern day Ford has put itself in a position where, you know, if its major suppliers in Taiwan can't produce what it needs, uh, it's got to go to the Biden administration and say, hey, would you mind spending $50 billion to build chip plants in the United States that we could have probably built ourselves with some of the money we've been handing our executives in the form of bonuses and shareholders through share buybacks and dividends. That's an important dynamic and we should be skeptical about changes. That said, there are lots of companies out there that say they're trying to shorten their supply chains, at least diversify their supply chain. So I mean, one thing that I think it's safe to assume is a lot of a lot of people discovered we should not be dependent upon one country, China, especially a country that we decide to have a massive trade war with to make stuff like face masks and other things that we're going to need in a pandemic. It's not the last time we're going to be in that situation. Now, there are some things that we can bring back to the U.S. There are some things we can't. I mean, why did so much manufacturing leave the U.S.? For a lot of reasons, some some is wages, some is uh, companies trying to minimize costs and maximize their profits. Some of it is, you know, we don't really like living around giant industrial plants that pollute our air and water. And we've been happy to essentially dump that uh, in parts of the world that are happier to prioritize business and jobs over health and safety and, uh, you know, pleasant living. That's probably not going away. So. I mean, we, stuff might leave China. We might diversify, but it's not like we're going to start mining nasty, you know, things that come out of the ground back in the United States as opposed to going to some other country that's willing to make the same bet that China's made over the years. So I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. But clearly in the margins, there's going to be some stuff returning. Um, I have one really unimportant question because uh, we've been talking about sort of like crucial, like, you know, big economic things. I really want my caffeine-free Coke Zero to come back. And it's just, it's, it's never come back on the shelves. And I'm, I'm sort of stumped by why. And so it's, early on, I heard there was an aluminum crisis. And so because people were, you know, using so many aluminum cans, you know, just sort of how stuff worked during the pandemic, will I ever get my caffeine-free Coke Zero back? And can you do some reporting on that? Because I, I, I'm desperate to know what happened uh, to The short it. answer is I have no idea, but I, I imagine that you will because I imagine that you're representative of other demand and eventually demand wins out and companies will make stuff that they can sell to customers like you. It is a fairly common problem that container lack of the plastic bags, the boxes, the aluminum cans, whatever. If you don't have that, you can't make your product. But that can is a shipping container for the delicious soda that I want. And so like, <laughs> those, those cans are in the wrong places. Right. Holding the wrong things. Yeah. That's right. Hey, I have a question about um, the idea that is this is this a black swan event? Like, is this something that is just because of, of the pandemic that it's happened or like 
are there indications that something like this could happen again? Like where are the pain points that we're seeing here that aren't getting fixed? You could call it a black swan event in terms of the magnitude, right? I mean, this is a pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in a hundred years. On the other hand, thanks to climate change, we're seeing lots of things that we haven't seen in a hundred years and we're seeing them with regularity. I mean, you guys are sitting in a place where really serious forest fires and, and droughts are, are now just part of how we live our lives, right? So mm-hmm. it's not a black swan event in the sense that we've certainly known that we were vulnerable to disruptions in the supply chain and we've experienced disruptions. I mean, I wrote a story back in I think 1999, there was a earthquake in Taiwan that knocked a bunch of chip plants offline. At that point, Taiwan was a much smaller but still significant source of, of chips and there were shortages around the world. Uh, when Fukushima happened in 2012, there were shortages of all sorts of things, including computer chips uh, for quite a long time. There was a, um, I think later that year, there were some very bad storms in southern Thailand uh, where a lot of uh, computer disk drives were made and there was a shortage. And each time, you know, everyone says, oh, we need to be more resilient. We need to have more backup plans. And then we go back to normal. And then guess what happens? Like the shareholders' interests are paramount. I mean, the people who run publicly traded companies, they're heavily incentivized to make share prices go up, which means cutting costs, handing out dividends, making shareholders happy. Now, this is an instance where shareholders are not happy, right? I mean, Amazon may actually be very happy that long term that their market share is increasing because we've all, I assume, had the experience where we we want to go to the store and buy something and support our local merchant, but they don't have the thing we need. So we go on the massive platform, Amazon, and we discover they have it and we buy it from Amazon. But in the immediate term, they're losing sales. I mean, these car companies are not happy that they can't make cars because they don't have chips. So you got to think there'll be some kind of change. Again, magnitude, yes, but there were certainly plenty of warnings that this could happen. Yeah, the other thing I think it's tricky is like we're all very privileged in, in first world, right? Like, are there examples of kind of how this has affected people in places that we may not know of? Like, I would have imagined like the factory workers in, in China or or the people that drive the truck to get the shipping container from China to the port in China, those people must be suffering in a way that we haven't even really heard about that much. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's a really good point. I mean, there's so much demand for factory goods that I think factory workers are, I mean, if anything, they're suffering because of how hard they have to work. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, to overtime and uh, wage theft is a problem in in much of, of the low wage world. I mean, that's that's why multinationals are there, right? It's, it's, it's a good cost equation. In terms of the shortages, I did write a story a few weeks ago about how nonprofits that are dependent upon contributions from profit-making companies, and especially mm-hmm. inventory, are having an impossible time getting hold of what they need. Food banks are not getting the donations that they need. I talked to a guy who runs a nonprofit in Haiti that hands out shoes to people who don't have shoes. And, you know, those of us who live in the wealthy world take for granted that you know, that's not a problem we've ever experienced. But you, if you live in a place where you literally don't have a reliable pair of shoes, you can't go to school, you can't go get a job. I mean, your your life is hard minute by minute. And so this, this guy uh, who I talked to relies on uh, donations from an outfit in Tennessee uh, called Souls for Souls, that gets a lot of surplus inventory from you know major retail brands and big sneaker companies that we've all heard of. And if they're having a hard time keep getting their products on the shelves of shopping malls in the United States and you know deliver to through through online uh, transactions, that's less stuff that they can donate. And so that trickles down to Haiti where there are now fewer people getting shoes. John, is there anything else you want to ask? Uh- no, I think I'm good. This is really helpful. I mean, this is great. Sort of the, the big overview. So thank you for that. That's super interesting. Uh, yeah. Thank you for coming up here. This, I mean, obviously it's, I was telling John, this is my first like semi-topical episode, but I, I think we got a lot here that like explains kind of like the larger picture of, of this space. And obviously it's, is there, I would always ask, like, is there anything that we can read outside of your work? Is there, is there a good book to kind of like dig in on this stuff? There's a lot of good books on the supply chain specifically like in terms of what we're dealing with, no, I mean, I'd add one dimension and then I'll give you something to read. Uh, you know, in fact, can I just make one point that I think you guys might want to add it? You know, it's important to note what we're discussing is like 
pandemic related, the way consumer choices have changed, hiccups in the system, we can argue about whether companies should have been better prepared or not. But clearly, you know, something significant has happened to them that they're adjusting to. But some of these shortages are by design and they're reflective of monopoly power. I mean, take, for instance, the price of beef, which has gone sky high. People are paying, people are going to supermarkets. They're paying a huge amount for beef. So you would think cattle ranchers are making a fortune. Cattle ranchers are going bankrupt because uh, they sell their product through something like 85% of the beef gets handled by four giant conglomerates. And uh, they're making huge amounts of money. And the cattle ranchers are making less because their margins have gone fat. So beef is not in short supply uh, because of some accident. Beef is in short supply by design. And then they've been able to say during the pandemic, well, it's so important to keep our slaughterhouse workers going. They're essential workers, even though we don't have PPE for them, even though they're contracting COVID at higher rates with you know large immigrant populations, African-Americans, women. So a great inequality in terms of who's actually in harm's way. This is not by accident. I mean, they didn't cause the pandemic. The pandemic may be by accident, but the high prices have been engineered by scarcity through consolidation. That is a factor uh, throughout the economy. There's a guy named Matt Stoller, uh, S-T-O-L-L-E-R, who has a substack and who wrote a book called Goliath that's very, very good in terms of history of monopoly power in the U.S. And he predicted these shortages uh, in a piece in, that ran in Wired in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. That's very much worth reading. Great. Um, uh, do you want to maybe quickly mention your book? Uh, it sounds fascinating. I haven't, I haven't dug into it much, but it's, is sure. it about, it's about billionaires and kind of how they changed the world? Yeah, so my book is about economic inequality as a source of uh, right-wing populism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I look, it's a, it's a global look. I mean, it's about Trump, it's about Brexit, but it's also about France and Italy and Sweden. Uh, it's about India. It's about how on the surface of many arguments throughout the world, we have populists, right-wing populists taking power in reaction to something that we can all see, obviously. Like, you know, suddenly there are migrants from North Africa arriving in Europe and there's a backlash. Trump demonizes immigrants in the U.S. and blames immigrants for all sorts of economic problems that go back, you know, 20 years. And we say, well, this is a backlash to immigration. Well, beneath or Brexit, you know, Britain uh, votes to leave the European Union to control immigration. Beneath all of these stories is a long-term systematic pillaging by billionaires who have put us in a position where so many people are without access to health care, without affordable housing, without basic economic opportunities that allow them to support families at a middle-class standard, that they're susceptible to all kinds of misinformation, to all, all sorts of you know, simplistic narratives that invite them to blame these other people for problems that are not only homegrown, but that are problems made by the people now proffering the solutions. So you know, Trump gets underwritten by Steve Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, the giant private equity company, you know, his fortune is pushing $20 billion. And somehow there's this nexus of white working class manufacturing workers who've seen their living standards degraded, underwritten by billionaires who want tax breaks and deregulation. I mean, the people who've essentially given us the problem by hollowing out our economies through systematic tax evasion, by essentially liquidating public infrastructure and transferring the proceeds to themselves are then the ones who you know, profit again by getting more of the same when our democratic systems you know, become vulnerable to, to, to misinformation. Does that, does that give you some semblance? That's great. I mean, I'm super fascinated by that. And it's also, you know, it pulls the curtain on, on the World Economic Forum in Davos where uh, many of these billionaires congregate to go congratulate themselves for fixing the world's problems while they're doubling down on the world's problems. Uh, okay, great. Well, that's that's amazing. Uh, I have one last question for you, uh, Peter, on the way out. I always ask all my guests if there's one thing outside of your normal life that you're way too interested in right now. Is, is there a specific thing that you can't get out of your head outside of economics? You know, I'm so caught up in my own family situation. I have an 18-month-old. I'm, I'm obsessed with sleep and NBA basketball. Those are my two passions. 
I don't get enough of either of them. Sleep, sleep will become obsessive in a major way if you stop getting it. So that's a good, that's a pretty good answer. Yeah. I was going to say our, our, our alternate topic for this podcast was going to be, I'm obsessed with babies and way too interested in babies. So I, 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 I can relate to the, uh, the joy and terror of having a young child. Oh yeah. Yeah. Equal, equal parts. No doubt. It's a game changer. All right. Well, thanks so much to uh, my guests, John and Peter. Um, I really appreciate both of you being here. And uh, uh, please, uh, everybody out there, go check out their uh, aspects of them online. Uh, John, you're on Twitter at, at John August. Is that right? right? And Peter, where can people find you? What, what's the best place to find you? Uh, I got a website, PeterSGoodman.com, Twitter, Peter S. Goodman, or just my author page at the Times. Great. All right. Thanks so much. And we'll see you all next time for Way Too Interested. Thank you, guys. It was fun. Thanks. All right, everybody, that's it for today's episode. Thank you to the Gregory Brothers for the theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson for helping with his production of the podcast. Again, sorry for the problem I had with the audio on my side this time. Hoping that's not going to work again. (laughs) Sorry, hoping that's not going to happen again. Uh, But stick around. Uh, If you haven't seen or heard of the podcast before, um, please check out the other episodes. Also, I didn't do this enough probably in the last two episodes, but please rate the podcast on iTunes. We've got a pretty good regular listenership right now already, which is great. But if you rate the podcast on iTunes or really anywhere you listen to it, it'll help me a lot. So thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next time.